I got my start in ministry here two years ago, and God's put me on a crazy ride since then. So now I work full-time here in our young adults ministry, so I see a lot of future young adults here. Seniors, I heard a woo, that was one young adult here. Seniors, this is an 18 to 30-year-old ministry here at our church, and seniors are invited next semester to come out and, and join what we have going on. We meet one Thursday a month. And um, with college and everything, college schedules, it's crazy. But we try to be here and gather and meet and keep community um, here with all the people instead of just everyone going their separate ways. So Young Adults has done exactly that in the past few years. And, um, and I'm just so thankful to be a part of that. So seniors, you are invited next semester to come out to our Young Adults gatherings and, um, and, and just experience all the things that we have going on to get you plugged in until, um, until your semester starts in college. So, but right now, I, um, well, I'm going to say this. <laughs> I, my message was a little too long, and I had to cut some parts out. And I was going to ask you how Thanksgiving was, and you were going to tell me your favorite thing to eat. And I was going to be like, no, 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 my wife makes the best macaroni and cheese. So I felt bad for cutting out the part that said, my wife makes the best macaroni and cheese. So what I want to do is I just want to tell you, hey, my wife makes the best macaroni and cheese. So tonight we're going to talk about David. (laughs) That was an interesting transition. Tonight we're going to talk about David. And uh, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you you might remember we talked about Joshua. We talked about um, Jericho. A lot of really cool things that happen, but then all of a sudden we fast forward to David and some, we skip some things. So instead of us skipping what happened in like the book of Judges that really leads up to David becoming king, there's a really cool video that I saw online by a company that, uh, that goes by the Bible project and they illustrate chapters and books of the Bible perfectly. So really quick, if you'll turn your attention to the screen, there's a really good video on the book of Judges that I'd like to show you that'll set us up for tonight. So remember, after Joshua led the tribes of Israel into the promised land, he called them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the commands of the Torah. And if they do this, they will show all the other nations what God is like. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua and basically tells the story of Israel's total failure. The book's name comes from the type of leaders Israel had in this period. Before they had any kings, the tribes were all governed by these judges. Now, don't think of a courtroom. These were regional political military leaders, more like a tribal chieftain. And you need to be warned, the book of Judges is very disturbing and violent. It tells the tragic tale of Israel's moral corruption, of its bad leadership, and basically how they become no different than the Canaanites. But this sad story is also meant to generate hope for the future. And you can see this in how the book's designed. There's a large introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure as they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. Then the large main section of the book has stories about the growing corruption of Israel's judges. And the progression here shows how Israel's leaders go from pretty good to okay to bad to worse. The concluding section is really disturbing and shows the corruption of the people of Israel as a whole. So let's dive in and we can explore each part a bit more. 
The opening section begins with the tribes of Israel in their territories in the Promised Land. And while Joshua defeated some key Canaanite towns, there was still a lot of land to be taken and lots of Canaanites living in those areas. And so chapter 1 gives a long list of Canaanite groups and towns that Israel just failed to drive out from the land. Now, remember, the whole point of driving out the Canaanites was to avoid their moral corruption and their way of worshiping the gods through child sacrifice. God had called Israel to be a holy people, and that does not happen. Chapter 2 describes how Israel just moved in alongside the Canaanites and adopted all their cultural and religious practices. And it's right here that the story stops. For nearly a whole chapter, the narrator gives us an overview of everything that's about to happen in the body of the book. This part of Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites, and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually Israel would sin again, and it would all start over. This cycle provides the literary design and flow for the next main section of the book. It gets repeated for each of the six main judges whose stories are told here. Now, the stories of the first three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, they are epic adventures. They're also extremely bloody stories. Either the judge themselves or people who help the judge, they defeat their enemies and deliver the people of Israel. The stories about the next three judges are longer, and they focus in on the character flaws of the judges, which get increasingly worse. So Gideon, he begins pretty well. He's a coward of a man, but he eventually comes to trust that God can save Israel through him. And so he defeats a huge army of Midianites with only 300 men carrying torches and clay pots. But Gideon has a nasty temper, and he murders a bunch of fellow Israelites for not helping him in his battle. And then it all goes downhill from there. He makes an idol from the gold that he won in his battles. And then after he dies, all Israel worships the idol as a god, and the cycle begins again. The next main judge is Jephthah, who's something of a mafia thug living up in the hills. And when things get really bad for Israel, the elders come to him begging for his help. And Jephthah was a very effective leader. He won lots of battles against the Ammonites, but he was so unfamiliar with the God of Israel, he treats him like a Canaanite God. He vows to sacrifice his daughter if he wins the battle. This tragic story, it shows just how far Israel has fallen. They no longer know the character of their own God, which leads to murder and to false worship. The last judge, Samson, is by far the worst. His life began full of promise, but he has no regard for the God of Israel. He was promiscuous, violent, and arrogant. He did win brutally strategic victories over the Philistines, but only at the expense of his own integrity, and his life ends in a violent rush of mass murder. Now, a quick note here. You'll notice a repeated theme in the main section of the book, that at key moments, God's Spirit will empower each of these judges to accomplish these great acts of deliverance. Now, the fact that God uses these really screwed up people doesn't mean he endorses all or even 
any of their decisions. God is committed first and foremost to saving his people, but all he has to work with is these corrupt leaders. And so work with them, he does. This whole section is designed to show just how bad things have gotten. You can't even tell the Israelites and the Canaanites apart anymore. And that's just the leaders. The final section shows Israel as a whole hitting bottom. There are two tragic stories here, and they are not for the faint of heart. They're structured by this key line that gets repeated four times at the close of the book. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The first story is about an Israelite named Micah, who builds a private temple to an idol, and that gets plundered by a private army sent from the tribe of Dan. So they come and they steal everything, and then they go and burn down the peaceful city of Laish and murder all of its inhabitants. It's a horrifying story. When Israel forgets its God, might makes right. The final story of the book is even worse. It's a shocking tale of sexual abuse and violence, which all leads to Israel's first civil war. It's very disturbing. And that's the point. These stories are meant to serve as a warning. Israel's descent into self-destruction is the result of turning away from the God who loves them and saved them out of slavery in Egypt. And now Israel needs to be delivered again from themselves. The only glimmer of hope in this story is found in this repeated line in the last part of the book. It actually forms the last sentence of the story. Israel has no king. And so the stage is set for the following books to tell the origins of King David's family, the book of Ruth, and also the origins of kingship itself in Israel, the book of 1 Samuel. But the story of Judges has value as a tragedy. It's a sobering explanation of the human condition, and ultimately it points out the need for God's grace to send a king who will rescue his people. And that's the book of Judges. So, as you can see, that was a ton of information that I could have spoke on for an hour here. But we didn't want to leave that out because it has to be known to tell the story of David. So there's two things specifically I want you to take from that video. One would be that God uses imperfect people to lead his people, the Israelites. So, not that any of those people that were up there or the judges were perfect people. They, they were not, but God still used them to continue pressing his people forward. And the other thing would be that when God's people turn their back on him, ultimately the Israelites, the kingdom, society slides into chaos and destruction. And we see that clearly in Judges. So the stage is set for 1 Samuel, the book we're at now and we're talking about tonight. So again, I'm going to walk through a ton of information tonight. And if you'll follow through, there's no way I could potentially tell David's story in the amount of time that I have right now in, in full. But I'm going to take you from the time that David is called to go meet Goliath, or David goes and sees Goliath, up until the time that he is faced, king, faced with King Saul to then give a response at why he wants to, to fight Goliath. So hang on with me there. But right now, I'm going to tell you about the prophet Samuel, king. So just to be clear, Saul was not perfect either, the king before David. He was by no means perfect. He had a lot of flaws. And as David is coming onto the scene, people are already ready for a new king. Saul wasn't cutting it. 
So just to give you an idea and a picture of what David would, would one day be and how he would, would one day be and how he, David himself, kind of foreshadows Jesus to come in the New Testament. I want to give you some really cool facts that I found about David in general while studying this. One would be that David didn't actually become king until he was 30. So tonight we're focusing on David in his student years, but right now, just so you know, David one day does become king, and that doesn't happen until he's about 30. Now you fast forward to Jesus. Jesus doesn't start his ministry on earth until he was about 30. So I thought that was kind of cool. I mean, it really foreshadows Jesus uh, if you look at David. But then you say, okay, the point of David's death and then all the way up to the point of Jesus' birth is about a thousand years. And some people would say that's a thousand years like to the hour. But we know for sure that it's close to about a thousand years. So really cool points to kind of see how David's really foreshadowing. Hey, he's not Jesus, but he's the king that's going to really bring Israel out of where it's been, like we see in Judges. So before we get to that, before we get to David and Goliath's story, which who's here heard, who here has heard of David and Goliath? I would say most of us have. If you haven't, I'm going to go ahead and spoiler alert. David kills Goliath, which is funny. There's a ride at Six Flags called Goliath. I don't know anyone who would name a, a roller coaster after a loser, but it's cool. So David, David dies. I mean, uh, Goliath dies. David kills him with a, a rock that hits Goliath in the forehead, maybe a little bit of a different way. So what we're going to do is we're going to bring you up to speed on how David even got in the picture in the first place. So the prophet Samuel, who put Saul in place as king, now is looking for a new king. He's mourning for King Saul. King Saul's not cutting it. So he goes, he asks God, what are we going to do? And God says, go to Jesse's house. One of his sons will be king. So the prophet Samuel's going to Jesse's house. Jesse's the dad of David. He's like, look, we believe that we as in me and God believe one of your sons is going to be the future king of Israel. And he's like, oh, okay, well, let me show you my sons. Here's this son, and here's this son, and here's this son, showing all of his oldest, best, strongest sons. He's like, no, none of these. Where's that other one you have? Don't you have another son? He's like, David? David? You want David with the sheep out back? So he calls David in, and then David's like, he's like, yes, that's the guy. This is the guy. So David, one day, is kind of foretold to be king. But this is even before David's king that this happens in David and Goliath. So if you have a Bible tonight or your phone, whatever, we're going to dive into Scripture right now. So turn to 1 Samuel 17. That's where we're going to hang out, the first part of 1 Samuel 17. And while you get there, I'm going to go ahead and say we see right off the bat a very ESPN, LeBron James-like description. Are they throwing any shade at Goliath? They give him all the attributes. So check this out. In verse 4, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out from the Philistine camp. The Philistines were who were opposing Israel. Comes out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span, which is about nine foot nine. He had six cubits and a span, which is about nine foot nine. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels on his legs, he wore graves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back with the spear shaft like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighing 
600 shekels. So imagine for a second, like you're up against that guy or he's in front of you. And that's nine foot nine. No telling how, I mean, we could probably figure out how much he weighed. I mean, we could figure out how much his armor weighed. But you get this huge, bold description of what Goliath was. Really, the writer sets the tone of how big this giant was in front of David or in front of even Israel. So now let's kind of, let's, let's hear David's description. Now take, David is not by any means a giant or even a grown man at this time. So David gets a much different picture painted in scripture. We see that David, being a teenager and probably a teenage guy's size, maybe leaning more towards a middle school boy's size, is He's getting a much different picture painted. Fast forward to verse 14. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So we see David is a shepherd boy. And if you're going to match up, say this is a football game, you're going to match up Goliath with someone. You're not picking David by any means. You're not picking David. So let me, we see the two pictures painted of these two very opposite figures. Now let me fast forward up to where we actually get to the battle or right before the battle of David and Goliath. So here's what takes place. David is told to visit his brothers, which are in the army that's literally terrified of the Philistines and Goliath. So he's told to visit his brothers. He's taken food. And then there, he sees his brothers and like, David, what are you doing here? Get out of here. You're wicked because you just want to see a bloodbath. You just want to see all of us get destroyed by this guy. And then David, that's obviously not the case, but David then sees what they're scared of, Goliath, and all of a sudden gets passionate. It's like, he's defying, wait, that guy's defying God. He's defying Israel. We've got to do something about this. So all of a sudden, word gets back to King Saul that there's this little guy wanting to do something about this big guy. So King Saul obviously likes David's passion and asks David to come and and see him. So now we're going to take it to verse 33 of Samuel chapter 7, 1 Samuel chapter 17. And here we see David's encounter with Saul on the topic of Goliath. Saul replied to David, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he's been a warrior since his youth. So he's saying, David, when you were tending sheep, this guy was killing people. When you were doing this, he was still fighting. He was still at battle. This guy's a trained, seasoned veteran. So here is the moment of tonight where I want to bring you to to hear David's reaction to him being told, you're not the guy, you're not the one to face him. Now, I don't know, I mean, a lot of times people would fast forward to the battle. I've already told you, the ba- we know who won the battle. David won, David beat Goliath. But here's where I really want to set tonight, and, and if you take anything away, it's in this, in this section of passage right here. So, Here's, here's David's response, and this is in verse 34. But David said to Saul, your servant, when he says your servant, he means himself. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. 
when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of those because he has defied the armies of God. So basically he's saying, yeah, I'm a shepherd, but when one of my sheep gets carried off, who is it that has to defeat the lion or defeat the bear who's carrying off the sheep? That's me. Don't you think that God once rescued me from that situation? So check this out. This is where, don't miss this. I mean, circle, if you've got your Bible, circle, underline, highlight. This is his response in verse 37. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And this is how Saul replies. Go and let the Lord be with you. Now, verse 37 is incredible to me. Like, I did not, when I was studying this, I did not plan to speak on this specifically in my mind. I was planning like, all right, let's get to the, let's, this is one of the things that leads up to the battle of David and Goliath. But God was like, no, right here is what a student needs to hear tonight. So just let me bring us back to another spot so we can sit back and reflect on this David's response really quick. For us believers in the room tonight, how many of us have responded to giants in our life with that type of boldness? Now, you might say, look, at North Paulding or at East Paulding, there's no nine foot nine bullies running around terrorizing people. And now I would also hope that was the case because I was only in high school maybe five, six years ago, and there were no nine foot nine tall bullies running around terrorizing people. But let me, let me bring this into the picture. I once heard the great Billy Graham refer to, when speaking about David and Goliath, modern-day giants as this. Peer pressure, the need to succeed, anxiety, depression, addiction, fatherlessness, and the need to belong. So some of these things that we face could easily be the same giant that David faced in, in a way that it seems impossible. It seems impossible to overcome this. So all of these things at one point could punch us in the face, but it's all about how we respond like David looked Saul in the eye and said in verse 37, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this peer pressure, from the hand of this need to succeed, from the hand of this anxiety, from the hand of this depression, from this addiction, from this fatherlessness, from this need to belong. So again, let's take a second to gather our thoughts. David, who is about your age, understands something that all the people in, the, in Judges, and even King Saul is starting to lose sight of, and that is the fact that God has rescued him before, and he's going to do it again. David hasn't lost sight of this. Where people might have lost sight of that before him, David now just a student, basically, has this fully in sight with this giant in front of him. So, again, I, I don't need to get into in the details about who won the battle, because we're not even going to get to that tonight. You can, after you leave, go home, read the full chapter. It's really cool. But David beats Goliath. But the reason I'm stopping here is because I think this here is where the battle was won. I think 
personally, when I read this, when I read the passage, I see that the moment David said, God did this before, he's going to do it again. What are you talking about? Why wouldn't I go against this guy? Why wouldn't I face this? That's when the battle was won. It wasn't when the rock was thrown out of the sling and hits Goliath in the forehead, although that's when Goliath might have physically died. David probably could have used anything to kill Goliath because Goliath had no chance. God was on David's side. God was on David's side, and there was, there was, there was no chance. In my mind, there was no chance Goliath had or the Philistine army. So I don't know how you read the story, but it's very clear David has a full life ahead of him. I mean, David specifically, being a student, has a lot to look forward to. At the time, I'm sure he was told he would be king, but he didn't know when that was. Or he just had to be faithful and let God put all the chips and the pieces into place. So that statement in verse 33 is just so huge to me that he can be that bold. And say what he said, God rescued me before, he's going to rescue me again. What is a Philistine going to get in the way? How would that happen? So for all the believers in the room tonight, people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, this should really ring true to you because God has rescued you before. God has jumped in your place. God has rescued you from the, the hand of sin and death. So this should really ring true. We have that experience of, hey, God rescued me before. What is this? What is this in the way? Why why should I worry about this? He rescued me before. So the main point, the main thing that I want you guys to take away tonight would be this. When we as children of God fully understand who we are in Christ, we can stand up to the giants in our life with the utmost confidence that God is going to come through just like he did for David. So let's tonight, students, let's, let's take away from this video, let's, let's take the warnings to heart we saw in Judges. When we rely on ourselves to overcome giants or things that just seem impossible in our life, when we rely on ourselves or really anything other than God, it always leads to death and destruction just like it did in the video because that's the sobering reality of the human condition, condition, which is sin. It's just sin within us. We can't do it on our own. We need a Savior. So tonight, let me, let me challenge you with this. When times get tough, think about and be like young David. When you're tempted to knowingly walk into sin, knowingly walk into sin, be like young David. When you can't turn to your friends, you can't turn to your peers, you can't turn to your parents, be like young David. You see, David looked king. And here's a piece that is so cool as we close tonight. Here's a piece that is so cool. It's what Saul's response is. Because Saul's response is what people say when they see, let the Lord be with you. That's what people say when they see a student. When they see a young adult, when they see a kid, when they see anyone on fire for Christ to the point where they've reasoned deep inside, God's already, he's already won the battle. I've just got to let him come through again for me. Let me pray that over you tonight. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak. God, thank you so much 
for the opportunity to speak here at Reckless in front of students. God, I thank you for, for bringing me to a point in this passage where you stopped me right at David's response because that's what you needed shared tonight. And I thank you for that. I thank you that I got to see this story in a new way. God, I ask that the believers in the room would, would realize that we have already once been rescued. God, we, we have been brought out of sin and death and, and you rescued us from the Paul of sin and death, God. But I ask for the students in the room tonight that might say, I don't remember a time in my life where, where that's happened. God, I ask the small groups tonight have the best conversations around how that can happen. And God, what you did on the cross for us through your son, Jesus. God, thank you again for such a great time tonight. In your name we pray, amen.